Hi, Dan. Evening, Omar. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? It's good. I mean, I, th- I think we planned this quite well. We didn't talk about it in prep, but, you know, the hour before Valentine's, not that Valentine's is just this evening, but I think it worked out quite well. Although, you know, my Valentine's might be spent with my daughter watching Spurs in truth rather than um, uh, out with uh, the missus, but that's a different story. <laughs> so you're going to watch Spurs over the Bayern PSG game or, or do you well, Actually, it's a very good point. Uh, the truth is, is that the the women in my household um, uh, are um, winning the um, yeah winning the, the the general race to the remote. So uh, yes, unfortunately, Spurs is going to be more. Even though I think the other games might be better, I might do the um, I might do the BT goal um, the goal thing. No, I think they I think they scratched oh, it. The, well, they don't have the knockout. Yeah, not for the knockouts. Oh, yeah, you're gonna have to. Have to get two screens up. Yeah, I agree. I, it just doesn't quite work. In fact, maybe, um, we might get into this on some of the Super League stuff around um, the way a, a Champions League could work and the knockouts and so on. But it is it is tough on nights like this because I'm I'm interested in watching Spurs as well from a kind of professional and personal point of view, an English point of view, and then yeah, from uh, from a pure football point of view, the obviously buying PSG is pretty pretty high profile. It should be a great. I mean, it's going to be a real good game. Do you know if um, is Mbappe back for it? Uh, I think so, but I'm not absolutely certain, actually. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. And, and another point that was actually raised on the ESL principles, so we'll get onto that in round player welfare. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, wanted to just open up with City first. Um, so obviously there was the big announcement last week, um, or, or rather almost like discreet announcement from the Premier League last week, very matter-of-fact to the point around um, breaches of... Premier League handbook. I must admit, I opened the Premier League handbook uh, once the, once I read the statement just to see what E14 and W18 and, and so on referred to. It is an absolute uh, feast of regulations, the Premier League handbook. But um, yeah, I appreciate it. others have perhaps broken down some of the charges, but give us a sense on some of those charges. So, you know, we, we were um, going to do a, a chat last week, but we were <laughs> both had lots uh, going on um, in lots of different directions. And uh, I think it was actually important just to sort of um, take a step back and see what's happened. Because obviously people know, um, you know, UEFA effectively charged um, Man City a good few years back, um, found guilty at first instance. Um, the the charges effectively weren't um, uh, found to have, um, um, well, City weren't found to have breached um, the regs apart from a duty to cooperate on appeal to CAS, mainly in part because either there wasn't enough evidence or... Um, matters were time barred, so um, we, we haven't got a sort of re- re- a rewriting of now the next phase. But what we definitely do have are a set of regulations, as you said, which now run. You know, the Premier League regulations are four or five hundred pages long. All of the regulations that are referred to in the the Premier League charge statement effectively run over a period back coming back. Um, if I if I look, I think yeah, two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven. And they're split into different categories. Um, the the most straightforward one, in a way, is not providing um, documents and information in good faith. Then there's um, the elements in relation to actually complying with the profitability and sustainability regulations, which are the Premier League regulations. And then along with an, an obligation to actually to comply with the UEFA 
um, FFP regulations and the licensing and FFP criteria. And then there's the disclosures or the supposed alleged lack of disclosures of particular contracts, managerial contracts and um, sponsorship related, party related matters as well. So it's, um, you know, I'm not sure the poor person that counted up the charges, but uh, breaches, but it was alleged, I think, 115 uh, breaches. So obviously that's, um, you know, a really big deal. And look, there's no point spe- me speculating because, you know, no one knows what um, uh, ultimately um, is going to um, happen. And anyone suggesting they do, I think is probably, um, you know, uh, probably doesn't have quite the, the insight or maybe maybe does. Um, but I think at least from a procedural perspective, like I, based on my experience as well, I think the really important Thing to probably note, and it's something Nick DeMarco Casey mentioned last week. I think he on Twitter, we, we know each other well and work on plenty of cases. Is you know, it's the great and the good that are uh, the lawyers and the barristers that are going to work on this matter. Um, it's likely, you know, a lot of the arbit- football arbitration matters that I work in. And this certainly is a much more high profile in terms of the highest stakes possible, you know, sometimes takes six to nine months in order to get to a hearing because of all of the administrative procedural disclosure, pre-hearing related matters and, you know, setting aside dates and times to be able to hear these particular things. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if even the hearing doesn't happen this year. In truth, that's not me knowing anything more than knowing how difficult and intricate these matters can be. Um, Nick was mentioning that he thought it might actually be uh, two to four years i could be wrong and well i think i think if you i think you might have said i saw it somewhere that you know over two years to potentially get to a final hearing or a final d- determination which is obviously can then be an appeal mechanism so the, the the long and the short of it is um you know just from an outsider looking on um you know uh, everyone's going to be polarized you know the city have effectively um, you know, one at first instance, or rather when that matter came before UEFA and then went to CAS, that doesn't look like there's an, a CAS appeals mechanism. It's, it would go to an appeal um, within the Premier League uh, regulatory structure. Um, but ultimately, you know, Man City have said, you know, they welcome the opportunity again to be able to have an independent panel, um, start, you know, demonstrate that they've you know, haven't been in breach of the regs and have complied with everything they need to have done. But, you know, from my perspective, the the decision will be an absolute fascinating one. I think the other fascinating thing, which you might not know for some time as well, is who the arbitrators will be. Um, uh, Murray Rose and Casey is the um, individual who effectively chooses the arbitrators. Um, so that would be um, a fascinating one to see. Ultimately, you know, I presume it will be another high profile lawyers that will be uh, the ones effectively hearing the matter. And then, you know, the ultimate decision, uh, everything's going to be confidential and private. But, you know, the Premier League have said that the ultimate final decision we published on the Premier League website. So that decision will just be, you know, probably one of the most important judgments um, in a sports football arbitration for an awful long time and will be poured over in, in due course. So, hope, sorry, that's a bit of a long answer to a, a very short question. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, the punishments, I mean, obviously, we don't want to speculate on them necessarily, but they can range from anything, presumably from a fine to expulsion of the league. That, that, what, 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 what does the Premier League kind of have at its disposal? Yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of discretion over, you know, they're, they're quite specific as to prescriptive um, uh, sanctions, but also, you know, as uh, what the panel sees fit effectively. So, you know, I think it's important to note as well, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it could be points deductions, it could be this, it could be 
previous years. It could be the year that the, the penalty happens. It could also be just as Man City are saying that they've done nothing wrong and they have the irrefutable evidence um, which demonstrates that um, they uh, they have complied with all the, the relevant regulations at the, at the right time. So I think it's important just by way of balance, you know, looking at it from the outside, there's obviously sensationalism and everything, which is, you know, Liverpool fans will want uh, points deductions for the seasons that they were close to winning the league. United fans might want the same or otherwise. And, you know, it's a very emotive subject. The reason I say it's pretty emotive, as you know, is that yesterday or the day before Pep came out, or today rather, Pep came out and said he apologised for, you know, the language he used with Gerard, effectively saying, is it our fault that, you know, Gerard slipped and, uh, and, and that which, I, I, you know, I think it's good of him to, um, you know, apologise and say, you know, it wasn't the, the right thing and didn't say it in the right way. But that shows that even, you know, a person is, you know, high profile, usually is considered and as articulate as Pep, um, you know, has, uh, has sort of, um, well, has, has been, has had such, a mot- such an emotive response, which, you know, is, you know, the world's against City and we need to defend ourselves again and we've got to go through that whole process once more. Yeah, that, that historical element's a real minefield, isn't it? It's, um, I don't know how you ever resolve that satisfactorily. I, I guess, maybe last one on this, I guess for you, it's a bit of a who's who of the the legal world. It's almost like your transfer deadline day, kind of who's who's going where. Is it actually quite fun from that perspective? Well, all I would say is, yeah, I mean, uh, it's Lord Panic acting for Man City and a who's who acting for um, the Premier League um, of the top uh, King's Council um, in the in the UK and some of the best silks in you know in the world in a way that have worked on competition law matters that we've worked alongside um, and you know their reputation precedes them so you know both sides are um, absolutely lawyered up to the hilt um, it would be an unbelievably fascinating hearing unfortunately it's in private so not a lot of people will get to it doesn't look like they're going to be able to to see it in action but um yeah it really is and you know it's the first time i think i was at the weekend i saw a banner um which was supporting lord panic i think at man city i, I can't say that's the uh, that that's certainly the first time i've ever seen a football banner um publicizing um uh, a club's lawyers in the same way i'm not sure i'll ever get that but you never know maybe one day yeah i was gonna say you can always dream one day always dream down one day, one day. Um, well, let's get on, let's go on to a topic that's like not actually totally unrelated, um, which is the the new proposals that came out on Thursday from A twenty two, is a sports management company that's kind of getting behind this new future for European football. I think they're careful not to use the language around European Super League and so on. And what I think was really interesting is that they published these ten principles and we'll go through perhaps some of them now um, and discuss you know the, the merits of the different principles. I think from my perspective what's really interesting is that um, we, we do a lot of competition review, a lot of structural review processes um, in our in our line of work so I uh, worked in, in leagues like the Eredivisie, Belgian Pro League, UAE, um, uh, in the US um, in Asia as well and I've got a couple ongoing at the moment and the biggest challenge on all these processes that you always find is getting alignment on the issues that you're trying to address or and or the vision that you're working towards because if you can get alignment on that then it's very easy to talk about the solutions that ladder up to that vision so if you can all get aligned on financial sustainability or you can all get aligned on competitive balance or whatever it is or player development 
then it becomes much easier to draw logical steps between, you know, this solution resolving that particular issue. Um, and so I think any good process sets out essentially a, a, a bunch of principles that people can agree on and essentially have a nodding head on. So every time you read it, you go, yep, that makes sense. I agree with that. Yep, that makes sense. I agree with that. Uh, so any good process does that. And then it goes into solutions. The biggest issue that the European Super League has, has run into is that the process that it's now going through, the communication that it's now trying to do, is what it should have done however many, well, almost two years ago now, basically. Um, and and so, like, we can go through these and, and we can kind of, uh, I think a lot of them are very sensible and make, make a lot of sense and most people would agree with. But it's, the, the from my perspective, it feels like the credibility is, is just so diminished. They obviously needed to wait 10 years before they needed to, to re-spark this conversation. I think that's right. And I think if we just go back to basics, you know, I remember... Was it 21, April, no, last year? I've literally lost. No, yeah, it's April yeah. 21. It was well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. we we were doing one of our chats as everybody started dropping, literally dropping out, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, so I, I think the I think the thing that we talked about in prep for the for our chat now was, in a way, you know, a lot of those principles that uh, that this the A22 Sports Management Group came out with. You know, on the whole, you would probably say that if you work backwards and they started with that exactly as you said, you know, I think a lot of people would probably be in agreement with a decent amount of them um, or at least understand the sort of fundamentals for why it was done in that way. It almost just feels, as you said, that it's been done backwards now where um, if, if the whole point was uh, originally, oh, it's a closed league and we're just going to get everybody in and there's going to be a few people that can join afterwards. And if that's the fundamental point, now everyone's saying, oh, well, it's going to be 60 to 80 teams with no permanent members. And we think solidarity is really important. And we think the football pyramid is really important. It all feels a little bit contradictory, doesn't it, I think? And maybe that's the uh, that's the point. And I just loved, um, you know, I think for everything, the, the La Liga chief, um, Tebas, has, has always got a really... <laughs> An interesting story to tell. I mean, he 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 like he's pretty you know outspoken. If it's Super League, if it's Barcelona and Madrid, if it's the Premier League, if it's PSG, and uh, again, I think he came out pretty strongly when uh, the A twenty two guys um, put their founding principles in place and just called it you know sort of their uh, uh, a wolf wolf in sheep's clothing. Was that the right way around? Yep. Yeah, I think that's what it was. It was um, yeah. It was certainly it was. It was um, or maybe it was Little Red Riding Hoods, yeah, and kind of acting as a granny or whatever it was. Um, but he's he's good. I mean, he's quite entertaining value, Tebas. I, I'm at the moment. I've been watching the the Apple documentary on the Super League, which um, to, to most listeners of this and most people in football, it explains a lot of stuff that you might already know. But it does get access to decent um, and interesting individuals. One of which is, is Tebas, who. Often for for an English audience, you don't often hear his interviews. Yes, he's speaking in Spanish. We often read read his quotes, but his, um, it kind of watching him interviewed is is quite uh, quite fun and entertaining. Um, but yeah, let, let's go through some of these. So you mentioned you know this first principle around having sixty to eighty teams in a in a kind of European competition. They they call it broad based and meritocratic competitions, which is obviously there's a reason that's the first one because the biggest thing that the Super League was hit with was that it's not meritocratic. It's 15 teams self-electing themselves into, um, uh, it, you know, into a league. 
Um, what's interesting is this kind of 60 to 80 teams distribution of revenues across the pyramids. So this kind of additional European pyramid is actually not a world away from some of the proposals that were floated in 2019, uh, which were kind of co-developed by UEFA and, and ECA. And actually in, in the documentary I was referring to, I referred to it a little bit as well. And, and they were roundly criticised because they weren't seen as meritocratic. They were seen as, um, you know, getting a right into European competitions. And even if you do poorly in the league, you, you stay in the European competition. So, again, you can nod along to the principle, broad-based and meritocratic, but actually when you get into the detail of it, fundamentally what, what the uh, organisers are trying to do here is, I guess, protect um, or, or reduce the spikiness of revenues uh, that exists, um, which, which is an interesting one as well, because actually not some of the clubs that have... Um, that are kind of supporting the ESL and obviously most notably Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus have actually not had that spiky revenue. They've consistently, I mean, Juventus obviously running into a bit of challenges now and, but, but consistently have qualified for the Champions League, but there are other clubs you almost feel like, um, you know, probably clubs on the fringes of the top six in England or, or a club like Roma or a club like uh, Villarreal who do have much spiky revenues and, and actually in some ways this type of model would, would suit them better. But yeah, Juve and, and uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona perhaps don't need that stability of revenue because they knew they're going to be in the Champions League every year anyway. I think the other thing I was thinking about as well when I was looking through these principles is, you know, the, the, the fundamental point, and maybe you're going to, I know you're going to touch on it throughout, is, you know, where's this money going to come from in the end? The money, I presume, is going to come from a platform broadcaster, you know, uh, B2B, you know, plat- well, I guess platform that's going to fund um, uh, the broadcasting deal or streaming deal for all of these 60 to 80 clubs to come forward. But it's not clear to me, and obviously they don't really want to say it, who, you know, who's, which broadcaster or otherwise are going to stick their head above the parapet and say, oh, we're going to be the ones that are going to help support the, what seems to be a relatively unpopular idea still. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're, they're speaking about, I think, they say 14 games? They're offering clubs a minimum of 14 guaranteed European matches each season. They've also said, the principle two is domestic tournaments, the foundation of football. So we can assume that domestic tournaments keep weekend dates. So you're talking about, OK, the Super League is now still in midweeks. Maybe it grabs one or two weekends back from, uh, from leagues, but still on weekend date, uh, midweek dates. Uh, it's an increase in volume of games, but are those games actually adding anything anything to the competition? Like we're both very much looking forward to the Champions League this this evening. It's double leg knockout. It's high jeopardy. It's super high quality. It's going to be really entertaining. You're going to sit down and want to watch it. What is this? Like where's this money coming? Because it, it, you're almost describing another version of the Champions League. So you're just taking the Champions League money that broadcasters and sponsors pay to the Champions League today and just transposing it onto this other competition. I just don't see where the value is coming from um, th- that they believe that they can then distribute for solidarity and, and improve sustainability in European football. It, it strikes me as, again, like, again, you can agree with that principle level, but then when you get into the details, I just, I, it falls a bit flat. I think it's also a little bit awkward um, from looking at the deconstruction of it, also about talking about player welfare, um, because in the same time, you know, one of the things we've talked about quite a lot, haven't we, around the number of games that players are playing um you're adding potentially another 10 games um into the 
what is already a ridiculously congested fixture um, uh, list. So I, I'm not even sure the the you know I remember when Arsene Wenger was coming out with with that the proposal that FIFA had a while back about the number of extra games on the international side that people want were going to potentially um, have to um, have to play in those teams and players particularly and now. You know the the this Super League idea, which is a lot more matches in the same type of space or window. I'm not even sure how that would even work or fit in. Yeah, so principle four is yeah, as you say, player health must be at the centre of the game. But they're saying minimum fourteen matches. So again, in order to you know, at the moment it's minimum six, I suppose. So you're increasing eight um, for, for teams. That means you're going to have to lose eight from elsewhere because. I just can't see a world of, uh, you know, where where players are playing even more games than they are at the moment. Um, so you're losing eight. Well, one obvious option is, you know, shrinking of of the domestic leagues, which interestingly France is already doing. So they're moving from um, from 20 teams to 18 teams. So a reduction of four games um, for for each team. Who knows? You might, you know, there might be pressure to reduce it further. But I don't see any incentive for leagues to do that. They, they've got leagues have got every incentive to retain the status quo. So, what's the quid pro quo? Prid, easy for me to say, quid pro quo for um, for the different uh, leagues here. I, I'm not really sure. Uh, and then, you know, that FIFA have, have spoken today that about a Club World Cup that will take place in Saudi Arabia at the end of the year. They, they're kind of keen to expand it, have more teams, more games. Yeah, I, I, those two ideas definitely um, seem in conflict. Um, and then you've got, yeah, club-run competitions with transparent, well-enforced financial sustainability rules. I, I think, you know, one of the motivations for ESL in the first place was the challenges that certain clubs felt keeping up with the likes of Man City, uh, PSG, to a lesser degree, Chelsea. Um, so... But but most would uh, there's been you know general support I think for UEFA's new proposals on on FFP I know they've renamed them um, and in truth p- part of the issue is it's still linked to um, you know revenue which does kind of lock in which has been the big issue with FFP over the last ten years um, ten twelve years or so is that it, it tends to lock in clubs where they are and doesn't give clubs the opportunity to invest in order to to grow, which which some clubs will do, and that's not just your cities and PSGs of the world. That that is other other clubs as well. So yeah, not none, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but but uh, there are there are holes and challenges in all of it. I think the other thing, Omar, just to say, and again, this is just one point we were sort of thinking about beforehand for the for the prep for this was, you know, I think when when A22 are talking about all these different principles. Uh, it doesn't take much to, and in prep, I was looking at a couple of really good athletic articles to to see that you know the three main participants or the three main back club backers still are Madrid, who I guess are in relatively good financial state of affairs, but Barcelona uh, and Juventus much less so. So I think that there has to be that balance which says, well, the entity that is. Uh, speaking about the need for financial sustainability and stronger regulations, um, you know, you point to Barcelona who are having to use all these, they call, they call them levers, to be able to um, ensure that, you know, they stay compliant of the, the Spanish regulations and legal regulations. And, you know, Juventus are literally in the midst of um, another 
um, you know, financial controversy where they've been docked points and, and such are in pretty dire financial state where, you know, the board has to effectively resign. So I, I don't think it takes much to look behind, look beyond and say, well, it is that is that a sign that the current financial, that the current set of regulations aren't working? I, I don't know the answer to that. And is it then a sign that's or is it a, a sign which is the opposite, which is what well, we need to. Uh, move away from the current status quo and look to another type of sort of set of regulations. And I can't quite work out which way round is um, uh, is the sort of accusation or the the behaviour actually then pointed towards. Yeah, it's it's a very very good point. Um, and then we get on to yeah some of the other principles of the world's best football competition. Um, and I, I think. A22 are very kind of quick to quote um, some of the research that's been done around younger fans. I have to say, having seen a lot of kind of uh, fan surveys in the past, I mean, this data is always very challenging. It's very hard to get the questioning right um, and and also requires context. So I think they they quote an ECA study, which um, is something like 40% of of 16, 24-year-olds do not like or have an interest in football. Um, instinctively, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, you know, I would say, you know, 40% of my friends at school may, may not have had an interest in um, in football or, or sport at that age. So it's hard, you, you need to be able to compare that to other age groups as well. So I think, yeah, sometimes it can be an over-egged. I saw, I saw an interesting thing yesterday, I'm jumping around a bit here, but... Um, around Disney reporting losses. And apparently one of the big drivers for it was that they essentially lost the rights to air cricket in, in South Africa, in South, in South Asia, so in, in India and Pakistan. Um, and most, and if you look at all the stats around the US, around most viewed broadcast during the year, sport is still incredibly dominant. And, and I think there is a definitely a debate to be had about whether it is going to be less dominant in, in the future. Um, but it is still unbelievably prime property. Um, and so the idea that you need to um, appeal to a younger audience, I think, is, is much more nuanced than perhaps some of the some of the discussions that take place. I know you've written about it before as well, this idea that younger fans have less attention. It's it's It needs a bit more scrutiny than perhaps it um, has today. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, yeah, maybe we can talk about that. Uh, that sort of piece that I, I did with all my colleagues knee uh, relatively recently, which is I think uh, the, the, the the very fundamental basics are you know just this idea that um, you know younger generations lack attention um, uh, is just I think a little bit lazy. Um, you know I, I speak to a lot of the younger generations that spend you know hours and hours on YouTube or Fortnite or you know gaming on. Um, uh, various esports platforms um, or on Twitch or otherwise. So I, I'm not of the I'm not of the view that um, attention spans are decreasing. I sometimes think um, attention is harder to necessarily, or rather, it's harder to focus on particular things because we are bombarded with so much content, which then means our attention um, is somewhat uh, can, can sometimes be somewhat wayward. Um, but I, I think it's a lot deeper than that. And I actually think fundamentally um, some of it might be to do with um, the, the friction um, uh, of being able to actually consume uh, pre- uh, premium football now, which are behind, you know, significant premium paywalls. But maybe that's for uh, maybe that's for another day. Yeah, definitely keen to, to get into that. As you said, you've written a piece on 
uh, particularly as it relates to 3pm blackouts and and access to, to football, which I think is a really interesting one. And and again, this is all kind of tied in together, actually, because, you know, one one argument around, um, you know, European Super League would be actually why not make more football free to air? You know, it's, it's gone off free to air in a, in a lot of um, a lot of major markets. Obviously, you don't get anywhere near the, the broadcast income as a result. But if you are genuinely worried about the kind of future of uh, accessibility of your sport, then that's a very you'd almost call that an investment. Um, and it's something that, for example, cricket's done. It's recognised that the money from Sky is super important and is needed to, to run and operate the game today. But actually, you know, having some games on the BBC is also really important. Um, and so they've, they've put the 100 and, and have kind of got a, a very good balance of, of deals there. So, you know, you wonder, um, you know, again, like it, it, my point earlier around, if you, if you agree on the principles, then sometimes the solutions line up. And I think they're, you can nod your head to a number of these principles, but but I sometimes wonder if the solutions will necessarily speak to all of them in the, in the best possible way. Um, and then you've got, yeah, improved fan experience, which I don't think anyone would disagree with, although a number of football association um, bodies have come out and said we've not been consulted. Um, developer finance, women's football, uh, you know, it's number eight on the, on the list, which I think... I'd almost go if you're going to have it as number eight on the list, um, almost don't have it something separate or have it, you know, not at all. Um, it, it feel women's football has constantly felt like an afterthought in um, in this project, and I, you know, you know, there, there's there's a world where actually, if you're proposing a, a women's world super league or European super league, actually, that's that's a really commercial, attractive commercial opportunity, but but they seem to have kind of fudged um, fudged the solution for now. Um, Increase of solidarity and then respect for European uh, Union law and values. Maybe we can dig into that another time. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting proposal. As I say I think there's there's things you'll nod your head along to, but uh, when you scratch a little bit at the surface. It, it may not be all all that it seems. Agreed. And I think just something for everyone to to look out for is that um, it's likely in the next couple of months that the the Court of Justice, um, where all of these questions of European law have been referred to about the Super League, um, will come to its decision. So if everyone remembers. Um, Advocate General Rantos at the end of last year came up with uh, his decision, um, which effectively said that, um, well, really backed UEFA with how it could run its competitions and its ability to be able to, um, you know, effectively authorise or rather not authorise um, the, the the Super League in particular um, objective instances. So look out for that um, in the next couple of months, I think it is likely to, to, to come across everyone's radar. And that will obviously have big implications for what, you know, the the Madrid, uh, Juve and um, and Barca Axis will be able to have. But, you know, practically, like we've already talked about, there definitely has to be questions about whether anyone is actually going to join, those high-profile clubs are actually going to join ever again or not for a while, um, if not for the legal reasons, but for the practical and and publicity reasons. Yeah, we'll we'll cover that in in depth and certainly get your view on it when, when that ruling's released. All right, well... Enjoy the Spurs game, enjoy the Bayern game, and uh, we'll catch you probably in a couple of weeks. Great to chat, Paul. Speak soon. Cheers, Dan. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast. Like, share, and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, You'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, 
an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.